Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And Little Bighorn, Part 3, The Backstory, Myth versus Reality. Today, in Part 3, we examine the reality versus the myth of the Battle of the Little Bighorn. To many, the story often called Custer's Last Stand serves as a stunning example of overreach and poor military leadership. To others, sadly, it serves as a deserved response for injustices done to the American Indians, forgetting that there are two sides to every story and to every war. The Battle of the Little Bighorn and the loss of General Custer and many of his men was a huge story when it hit the Eastern newspapers during the centennial celebration of July 4, 1876. All the expected emotions were played out through the media, which was almost exclusively newspapers and magazines. Anger, shock, Disbelief, a sense of loss, then retribution, and blame. Custer was a national hero, well known for his daring and successful exploits during the Civil War, which raised him to the rank of Brevet General. He and his young wife Libby had traveled east, spent time in New York, and done the interview circuits, rubbing elbows with the elite and the well-connected, not only in the Northeast, but in Washington, D.C. as well where political possibilities for Custer showed promise, if they could get a Democrat in the White House after Grant. The news of Custer's death was unacceptable. The news that thousands of Indians were on the warpath on the frontier meant the failure of our government and our military to keep them on reservations, and all that blame was placed on Grant's doorstep. No blame could be placed on Generals Terry or Crook or Custer, the three who deserved it most. Terry, for his delay in joining forces with Custer, and for his wink-and-nod orders to Custer, which left Terry beyond any blame. Crook, for stalling after one battle, and not sending any messengers to Custer or Terry, thus depriving Custer of needed reinforcements. Because, to be honest, you just didn't put blame on generals in those days, and you still don't today. The blame slides downhill to the commanders on the battlefield, and Major Reno was ripe for the picking. Actually, Benteen was culpable as well, but he managed to show leadership and courage when it was needed, and this saved his neck. Custer's wife, Libby, devoted the remainder of her life to protecting and defending her husband's reputation, and there were many who believed, and rightly so, that he deserved much of the blame for the loss. There are a number of myths that have evolved through the years about what is generally known as Custer's Last Stand. The most popular myth was that the entire division under Custer was wiped out. We know that Custer split his forces into three parts, giving Reno three companies and Benteen four, and that a number of these men, as will be told in the following story, survived. Custer lost a full battalion, five companies, C, E, F, I and L companies. Some men from C Company, like Private Thompson, ended up with Benteen. Another myth was that there were no witnesses to Custer's last stand, and that there really was no location where it took place, and that we really don't know what happened. The last stand, some critics still say, never occurred. The men, they say, all broke and ran and were killed in small groups over half a mile of battlefield their naked and mutilated corpses scattered like feed corn with no battle lines shown. Not so. 
said hundreds of witnesses in the year following the battle. Those witnesses being the Indians who fought and survived that battle. Not so, say the archaeologists, who have unearthed shell casings on Custer Hill. Custer and those closest to him retreated along a series of ridges until they reached what is today called Custer Hill, and fought it out, shooting over the backs of their dead and dying horses. According to dozens of Indian witnesses, those last men who surrounded Custer fought bravely and well. Some Indian witnesses early on swore that Custer was killed in the river. He wasn't. And the American public came to believe Custer disobeyed orders. But as we explained in Part 1, Terry's orders were purposely ambiguous. Custer did not disobey them. Others believe Custer ignored his scouts. That's not an easy one to answer. He did underestimate the numbers of warriors. But Terry and Crook let him down. They hung back when they should have pressed on. And Benteen was purposely slow. But it was Custer who sent him out of the line of action to begin with, figuring Benteen's men would be in a good position to cut off escape. Custer's two biggest mistakes were one, thinking the Indians would run, which they didn't, and that he could use hostages. The Indians didn't run, and Custer couldn't get close enough to grab hostages. And then there's the myth that Custer's last stand was the major battle. It was brutal, but it only lasted about 30 to 40 minutes. The real fight was in reaching and holding Reno Hill for two long, scorching hot days and nights against a superior force armed with repeating rifles and all the food and water they needed, while Reno and Benteen's men had none. But Custer's demise and the fates of the five companies of men who fought and died with him was only a part of the story of what happened on those two sweltering hot days in June of 1876. There were seven companies of men still fighting for survival on top of Reno Hill against overwhelming odds. One doctor, with no water to clean wounds, dozens of dead and wounded, penned in by Indian sharpshooters, and barricaded at some points by mounds of dead horses, cracker boxes, and saddles. Reno Hill was the longest Indian siege in Western history, and those Indians wanted these troopers who had attacked their village dead. That fight was the ultimate test of courage and spirit. Some men broke, and some men rose to the occasion. Very few people know that 24 7th Cavalry Troopers received the Congressional Medal of Honor for bravery at Reno's Hill at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, and deservedly so. It is exceptional that so many Medals of Honor were awarded in a battle of this size, and equally exceptional that not a single medal went to an officer. Each man performed acts of courage that went far beyond the call of duty. There are a handful of eyewitness accounts that exist today that describe the actions of some of these men, but none more thorough and controversial than that of C Company's 22-year-old Private Peter Thompson and his story, which was included in Black Hills Trails, A History of the Struggle of the Pioneers in the Winning of the Black Hills, now housed at Pittsburgh University and published in 1924. Thompson had begun writing his memoirs of the battles almost immediately after his participation. I said controversial because for many years serious researchers, such as the renowned Walter C. Camp, who spent years collecting eyewitness accounts from the survivors from both sides of the battle, discounted portions of Peter Thompson's account 
which related to his positions taken along the river and ravines the day of Custer's and Reno's battle, as well as the accuracy of his account of Custer's stand as seen from a distance. Thompson was originally in C Company with Custer. Thompson's horse gave out on him along the edge of the bluffs behind the Sioux camp as Custer prepared to attack the village, and Thompson was left behind. He spent the remaining hours on foot and in the company of another soldier, Private Watson, also of C Company, doing their best to keep their scalps moving through wooded areas outside of the Sioux camp. They both were finally able to make Benteen's position on Reno Hill after darkness fell on that evening of June 25th, after witnessing Reno's battle and retreat, as well as Custer's demise around 4.30 p.m. that day. Again, from a distance. Private Thompson, when he reached Reno's Hill, gave his account to the men under Benteen and Reno's commands, and they didn't believe that Custer had been annihilated. It just would not register. He also stated that he had seen Custer alone, scouting forward near the river, where Medicine Coulee, which was a dry riverbed, entered it, making Thompson, if his story was correct, the last living white man to see Custer alive. He also said that he had seen the scout Curly leading a bound Sioux squaw on a rope behind his horse, and that Custer, who appeared on his horse upstream from Curly, ordered Curly to let her go. Thompson's account couldn't and didn't ring true to Benteen's men. So Thompson dropped it and made no more mention of it. But historians for years have been piecing together both Indian and scout accounts, and Thompson's story today is being considered very likely. One thing is for certain. Peter Thompson's courageous efforts to supply Benteen's trapped and wounded men with water took place as he describes them in the following text, and he became one of those 24 recipients of the Medal of Honor for his selfless courage. In his account, which we are sharing here, you will join him from the time his horse gives out on him on the trail with Custer to Benteen's stand on Reno Hill, to his participation in the burial detail at the scene of Custer's last stand, and finally to the trip with the wounded on the paddle-wheel steamer far west, as it guided what was left of the cavalry back to civilization. You will get to meet many of the men he fought with, and we will add footnotes where they can be helpful. It all starts at Benteen's position on Reno Hill early in the morning of June 26, 1876. H Company's Benteen was now commanding seven companies, Major Reno having chosen to hunker down and empty a bottle, with Benteen and Lieutenant Gibson maintaining watches through the early morning hours while the others slept. At dawn, Benteen, having no sleep for the last 48 hours, went to sleep, despite the increase in bullets coming in, one of which tore the heel off his boot, and another smacking the earth just below his armpit. Gibson, who had been left in charge, could see the Indians climbing up closer through the ravines, and shouted, Get the old man up here quick. This is Private Thompson's account. The Indians had been pouring in volleys upon us long before I'd been awakened, and they were still at it. Under the cover of darkness they had gained a foothold in some of the numerous ravines that surrounded us. It seemed as if it would be impossible to dislodge them. Some of them were so close to us that their fire was very effective. The ping of the bullets and the groaning and struggling of the wounded horses was oppressive. But my duty was plain. The way that I had to go to my post was up a short hill towards the edge of the bluff and the head of the ravine. 
while packing my ammunition in order to carry it easily, I glanced up in the direction I had to go, and for the life of me, I could not see how I could possibly get there alive, for the bullets of the Indians were plowing up the sand and gravel in every direction. But it was my duty to obey. So I headed for the point, in order to keep the Indians in check, and if possible to drive the Indians out of the ravine. It did not take me long to reclimb the top of the bluff, where I got a glimpse of the Indian village, the river, and the mouth of the ravine. After getting everything in shape, I started on the run. The fire of the Indians seemed to come from three different directions, and all exposed places were well riddled. Even a secure place as where we had formed our breastwork was no longer safe. The Red Devil seemed determined to crush us. As I ran up the hill, which was but a short distance, I was seized with a tendency to shrink up and was under the impression that I was going to be struck in the legs or feet. I was not the only one to run for the head of the ravine. Captain Benteen was busily hunting up all the men he could to go toward that same point. I had gotten so far without being hit that I thought I was going to get through safe, but as I was entering the mouth of the ravine, a volley was fired by the Indians who occupied it, and over I tumbled, shot through the right hand and arm. A short distance below, I saw several cavalrymen who were soon joined by others, eleven in all, a slim force indeed to clean out the ravine held by so many Indians, but they were resolute men. Captain Benteen soon joined them and made a short speech. He said, This is our only weak and unprotected point, and should the Indians succeed in passing this in any force, they would soon end the matter as far as we are concerned. And now, he asked, Are you ready? They answered, Yes. Then, said he, Charge down there and drive them out. And with a cheer, away they dashed, their revolvers in one hand and their carbines in the other. Benteen turned around and walked away to the extreme left, seemingly tireless and unconscious of the hail of lead that was flying around him. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. Knowing that in my condition I was useless, I looked around to see if I could find anyone who could direct me to a surgeon. I knew that there were two with General Custer, but I was not sure whether we had one with us here or not. A short distance from me lay a wounded man, groaning and struggling in the agony of death. Just as I was thinking of getting up, I heard an order given by a Sioux chief. A heavy volley of bullets was the result. My wounded neighbor gave a scream of agony and then was still. After the volley was passed, it was a wonder to me how I had escaped. I now struggled to my feet and found that I was weak and dizzy from loss of blood. I looked around me and saw what remained of those who had gone down the ravine against such fearful odds. Few of them returned, but they had accomplished their objective. We had men with us who seemed utterly fearless in the face of danger. One young man had the courage of a lion. Wherever duty called him, whatever the danger might be, he was always found at his post. Our Note It's important for our listeners to note that by now the temperature was closing in on 100 degrees. The stench from the dead horses which were being used as barricades was becoming unbearable. Many of the soldiers had not had a drink of water in two days. Their mouths were so dry they could no longer form words. Some began to drink urine from the horses. There were 40 wounded men, many of whom had lost a lot of blood and were slowly dying of thirst 
as Dr. Porter tried to stretch a canvas over them for shade. They were crying and begging for water. Thompson had been wounded in the arm and hand while involved in Benteen's charge. He continues here. Going in the direction of the horses, I saw what suffering the poor brutes were enduring from thirst and hunger. But we ourselves were no better off. I found in the center of our place of defense that we had a surgeon busily attending to the wounded and dying. I asked him to attend to me when he had the time to do so. He soon bandaged up my wounds and told me the only thing that could be done was to apply plenty of water. What mockery! Water was not to be had for love or mercy. Our way to the river was cut off excepting by the way of the ravine out of which the eleven brave men drove the Indians. But to attempt to get water by that route was too risky. I looked on while the doctor attended to the wounded that were brought in. Some of the poor fellows would never recover. Others would be crippled for life. And I would carry a broken hand. The sun reflecting on the sand and gravel made it very hot. The loss of blood and lack of water made me so dizzy that I reeled and fell and lay unheeded. But this was getting to be a common sight. I still clung to my carbine and revolver. When I fell, I managed to roll over on my face and place my carbine under me. I knew that if anyone needed such an implement, they were liable to take it. I do not know how long I lay there, but I have a faint recollection of being turned and my gun taken from me. This aroused me, and I managed to struggle to a sitting posture, but the man and the gun were gone. He had left his own in his place, but it was practically useless, the breach being broken. While I was meditating on the meanness of human nature, I saw Captain Benteen dash into the midst of our horses and drive out several men who were hiding and skulking among them. "'Get out of there!' he cried. "'Do your duty!' It soon became known that the Indians were concentrating for an attack upon our lines. They had closed in around us on three sides, and so close were they that we could hear them talking. Captain Benteen seemed to be aware of the impending danger, and was forming all the men he possibly could into line at the point where it was expected that the Indians would attack us. The heat of the day was oppressive, and the guns of the Indians were silent, and these facts brought a feeling of depression over us. We all realized that our lives were not worth betting on, but the expression on the faces of the men was that of dogged determination to sell those lives dearly. We only had two spades, the others having been either broken or lost, so our means of digging rifle pits were limited, and natural defenses there were none. History hardly records a predicament such as we were in. It does mention the hardships of the soldiers of the late Civil War, but it was nothing to campaigning against Indians. A white man capturing an enemy usually spares his life, but if captured by hostile Indians, his days are numbered, and he is known to men on earth no more. How were we going to transport our wounded? We had plenty of them, and some of them very badly hurt. Look where you would, you could see either dead or wounded soldiers, and the end not yet. The silence was suddenly broken by a loud command given by a hostile chief, which was followed by a terrific volley, and a great many of our horses and mules passed over the range. Our men never wavered, but hugged the grounds as close as possible, and fired whenever they found the slightest opportunity to do execution. All realized that the less ammunition expended the better. 
Although the Indians outnumbered us many times, they lacked the courage and determination of the day previous when they fought Custer. They no doubt have been taught a bitter lesson. Had it not been for the watchfulness of our men, they certainly would have got the best of us. Our men were always ready. While the hottest of the fight was going on, and the tide of battle seemed to be against us, our doctor dropped his bandages and, grasping a gun, started toward the skirmish line. Some of the men seeing his action begged him to stay, telling him that it would be hard with the command if anything should go wrong with him, and to enforce their arguments, a wounded man was brought in who needed his immediate attention. This, for a time, seemed to deter him, for he laid down his gun and commenced work at his former occupation. He was kept very busy for some time. I made my way slowly over the small place in which we huddled together and was very much pleased to see some of the men stretching canvas over the wounded and dying. This canvas the officers had brought along for their own use, but it was given up by them for the humane purpose of sheltering the helpless. The canvas had to be stretched very close to the ground. The supports that were used were short pieces of wood of any kind that we could procure without risk. We had no use for firewood if we could have gotten it, as we had no water to cook with. Hence our wounded were deprived of the comforts that a sick man needs. As I strolled around, I could see something of the horrors of our position. It was not a question of days, but of hours. We could in all probability bury our unfortunate comrades who had fallen in battle, but it would be impossible for us to dispose of our dead horses and mules. The stench would become so great that it would drive us from our present position, and where were we to go? It was utterly impossible to move our wounded, as we had no means at hand by which we could have done so. We were quite willing to change our location, if we could, but we hesitated for several reasons. We were separated from our leader, and our forces were divided. The Indians seemed determined to exterminate us if possible. The only hope for us to accomplish our purpose was to make the effort after night came on. I wondered if any of the other members of Company C had been as unfortunate as myself. Although that company had entered the fight with General Custer, there were a few who had been detailed on the pack train, so I commenced to search around for them. I first found a man by the name of Bennett, whom to know was to respect. I could see that his days were numbered. Kneeling down beside him, I asked, Can I do you any service? He grasped my hand and drew me closer to him and whispered, Water, Thompson, water, for God's sake. Poor fellow. He was past speaking in his usual strong voice. I told him I would get him some if I lived. He released my hand and seemed satisfied, and then I began to realize what the promise I had just made meant. This was on the 26th day of June, a day long to be remembered by all who took an active part. In fact, a day never to be forgotten. As far as getting water was concerned, it was a matter of the greatest difficulty. All routes to the river were cut off by the Indians. I was determined to make the effort nevertheless and looked around for a canteen. I thought of the ravine which was cleared by the eleven brave men and hoped that I might be able to make my way to the river by that route. I made some inquiries of some skulkers whom I found in among the horses, and from what they told me I concluded that the ravine route was the only safe one to take. In a short time I secured two canteens and a coffee kettle. I made my way to the head of the ravine which ran to the river. 
I found that very little change had taken place since that incident in the morning. The firing on the part of the Indians was rather dilatory. A person could make his way around with a little more comfort, but how long this would continue, it was impossible to tell. As I gained the rise of ground that commanded a view of the village, river, and surrounding country, I saw a small group of men examining an object lying on the ground, which I found to be an Indian bedecked in all his war paint, which goes to make up a part of their apparent courage and fierce appearance. He was found very close to our position, which goes to show how closely we were confined. The Indians were able to occupy every available position afforded by nature on account of their numbers. If it had not been for the terrible position we were in, we could have had a panorama view of the snow-capped hills of the Bighorn Mountains, which formed the fountainheads of the Little and Bighorn Rivers. While wondering as to my next move, I was suddenly brought to myself with the question, Where are you going, and what are you going to do? The questioner belonged to my own company, and I naturally expected him to sympathize with me in my errand of mercy. He not only tried to dissuade me, but called the sergeant Neep and told him of my intention of going to the river. The sergeant told me of the hopelessness of the undertaking, telling me that if I should ever attempt to make the trip, I would never get back alive. I told him that as I could not carry a gun, I thought I'd better do something to help the wounded and the dying. Seeing that I was determined to go, they said no more, but one of the men of Company C, named Tim Jordan, gave me a large pocket handkerchief to make a sling for my wounded hand. I started down the ravine, but I halted, for I found I had not my belt in which I usually carried my pistol, having given it to one of my comrades. But on going back to the man and asking him for it, he seemed to be confused, and stated that he had lost it so there was nothing for me to do but console myself with the reflection that I'd better have taken care of it myself. I turned around and made my way through the midst of several citizen packers who accompanied us on our expedition. No doubt they thought the position they occupied was the safest one to serve their country. As I went down the ravine, I found it got narrower and deeper and became more lonesome and naturally more depressing. I noticed numerous hoof prints showing that the Indians had made a desperate effort to make an opening through our place of defense by this route. But now it was deserted. After I had traveled a considerable distance, I came to a turn in the ravine. Pausing for a moment, I looked cautiously around the bend, and there before me was running water, the Little Horn River. On the opposite side was a thick cover of cottonwood timber, the sight of which made me hesitate for a moment. It was possible that some of the Indians were concealed in it to pick off anyone who was bold enough to approach the water. But I could see no signs of life and concluded to proceed. I made my way as rapidly as possible toward the bank of the river. I found the ground was very miry, so much so that I was afraid I might get stuck in the mud. I concluded that there was nothing like trying. I laid down my canteens and took my kettle in my left hand and made several long leaps which landed me close to the water's edge. The water at this point ran very shallow over a sandbar. With a long sweep of my kettle upstream, I succeeded in getting plenty of sand and a little water. Making my way back towards the mouth of the ravine, a volley of half a score of rifle balls whistled past me and the lead buried itself in the bank beyond. I gained the shelter of the ravine without a scratch and was thankful. 
I wondered whether it would be safe to stop long enough to put the water into those canteens, as the fire of the Indians seemed to come from a bend in the bank, a short distance from the mouth of the ravine on this side of the river. I was not sure but that the Indians might take a notion to follow me. Had I been armed, I would have been more at ease. I knew I could travel with greater ease if I left the kettle behind, so I placed it between my knees and soon transferred the water from it to the canteens. I started on, looking back once in a while to see if the Indians were coming. I soon turned the bend of the ravine, but no signs of them did I see. Although my thirst was great, I did not stop to take a drink until I landed amidst my fellow soldiers. I offered to divide the water of one canteen with some of the men of Company C. They refused my offer when I told them that my effort was made in behalf of the wounded members of our company. On coming to Bennett, I placed a canteen in his hand, but he was too weak to lift it to his lips. He was attended by John Mahoney of our company, and I had no fear but that he would be well cared for. I skirmished around and found two more of my company slightly wounded. I gave them the other canteen and told them that if they should not require all the water, that I would like to pass it around to some other wounded ones lying close by. And that was done. A man by the name of Sergeant McVeigh, to whom I handed the canteen that he might drink, seemed determined to keep it in his possession. I jerked it from his grasp and passed it on to the next. With a cry of rage, he drew his revolver from beneath his overcoat, and taking aim at me, he told me to skip, or he would put a hole through me. I was too much astonished for a moment to even move or speak, but when I did regain my speech, I used it to the best advantage, as that was all the weapon I had. Fortunately, I was not armed, or I would have committed an act that I would have been very sorry for afterwards. My action would have been justified by the law, as it would have been an act of self-defense. The offers of money by the wounded for a drink of water were painful to hear. Ten dollars for a drink, said one. Fifteen dollars for a canteen of water, said a second. And so the bidding went on as at an auction. This made me determined to make another trip and to take a larger number of canteens, so I would not have to make so many trips. Our next trip to the river was taken with more courage, but as on the former occasion, when I came to the bend in the ravine, I halted and looked carefully around the corner. I was astonished at seeing a soldier sitting on the bank of earth facing the river with his back towards me. I was curious to know who he was. I came up to him and saw that he had two camp kettles completely riddled with bullets. He had his gun in his hand and his eyes fixed on the groove of timber across the river, watching for the enemy. On looking him over, I could see the reason for his sitting and watching as he did. I discovered a pool of blood a short distance from him which had come from a terrible wound in his leg. It was impossible for him to move further without assistance. I asked him how he received his wound. He told me he had gone to the river for water and when he was coming up from the bed of the river with his two kettles filled with water, a volley had been fired at him, one of the bullets hitting him and breaking his leg below the knee, the others riddling his kettles. He had managed to make his way under cover of the ravine to the place where I had found him. Then I told him as it was my turn now I would proceed to business. He tried to dissuade me, but as I would not go back without water and it was useless for me to remain where I was, I laid down my canteens and grasped the camp kettle which I had left on my previous trip. I walked forward looking into the grove for signs of Indians, but not a sign of life could I see. 
Looking to see where the water was deepest, I made a few long leaps which landed me in the water with a loud splash. I knew it was useless for me to try to avoid being seen, so I depended upon my ability to escape the bullets of the Indians. A volley was fired, but I again escaped. Madden, the wounded man I had just left, watched me with the greatest interest. When I returned to him, I urged him to take a drink, but he refused to do so by saying he was not in need of it. This caused me some surprise, as I knew he had lost a great deal of blood, which is almost invariably followed by a great thirst. And now our note. Watching from the other bank of the river was a group of young Cheyenne warriors led by two moons. They were surprised to see a soldier in his undershirt running toward the river with a large cup. The soldier threw himself in the water, two moons told an interpreter, and started filling the container. Half the time they could not see him, he said, because of the water thrown up around him by bullets. Thompson made it back, as the following story relates, but he doesn't mention that the soldiers he met when he reached their position said his head was bleeding. His face was full of blood. Thompson said his head was all right. It was his wounded hand and elbow that was hurting. But soon the doctor confirmed that Thompson had been grazed three separate times on the head. One bullet, indeed, had left a furrow across his skull, which stayed with him for the remainder of his life. Thompson may have been shot full of bullets, but he was also shot full of luck. And now we return to Thompson's account. I made haste to fill the canteens and started on my way to camp, bidding Mike Madden to be of good cheer, and he made a cheerful reply. When I reached the place of our defense, I found that the firing was not so brisk. Only a few scattering shots now and then. Our men were still on the alert. There was no weak place unguarded. No ammunition was being wasted. Although we had 24 boxes of ammunition, which amounted to thousands of rounds, the men only fired where they thought they were going to do execution. The Indians had in their possession three guns which, time and again, our men tried to silence. These guns were in the hands of good marksmen. The position they occupied was behind some rocks in our rear. All we could see when they fired was a puff of white smoke, but the results were very disastrous to our horses and mules. The shot hardly ever missed its mark. The number of dead animals was growing very large. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. I now made a hurried search for some more canteens, and in making my way towards the head of the ravine, again my attention was called to the fact that Major Reno had at last come out of his hole. He held a pair of field glasses to his eyes, looking in the direction of the village. Presently he dropped the glasses, and looking around, saw me. He motioned for me to stop, telling me, at the same time, that the Indians were concentrating for a united attack and ordered me to go back, as it was dangerous for me to go down to the river. I had been aware of this for some time. Evidence existed on every side which showed what they'd been trying to do since daylight. As I stood looking at him, I could not help wondering if he knew what his duty was. Here he was with about 400 men surrounded by hordes of savages. If ever soldiers needed a good example, it was here. Did he show such an example? Did he give cheer to his men? Did he show how a true soldier should act under difficulties and die if needs be in defense of his own country? No. Instead of this, he kept himself in a hole where there was no danger of being struck and no doubt would have pulled the hole in after him if he could. 
Turning to the left, I walked through the herd of horses until I got a sufficient distance from the major not to be noticed by him, and then made my way to the river. I found Madden had been removed, and it made me feel a little lonesome on this trip. But I'd become so indifferent to my surroundings that I did not care whether the Indians fired at me or not. So I walked slowly to the river, filled my cab kettles, and as slowly returned to my task of filling my canteens. All this time the Indians did not fire at me. It occurred to me that the stillness was almost oppressive. After filling my canteens, I looked towards the timber. There were no signs of life there. When I reached the top of the bluff again, I saw Captain Benteen hard at work placing a few men here and a few men there. He was as cool and collected as ever. I noticed that blood was making its way through the leg of his trousers, and I concluded that he had received a flesh wound. But with the exception of a slight limp, he gave no signs of pain. His presence was cheering and encouraging to the men. Wherever he went, their faces lighted up with hope. The tire on the part of the Indians became continuous. If they had any hopes of driving us back from our position, they were disappointed. We were like rats in a hole. We could go no further. From about three o'clock in the afternoon until the day wore away, the Indians' fire grew less, thus showing that they were getting disheartened at the prospect of getting our scalps where their ammunition was running low. The latter, I think, was the real cause, for they had consumed a tremendous amount of it in their attacks on Custer's and Reno's commands. There was a large body of Indians engaged against us, so they must have had plenty of ammunition. About seven o'clock in the evening, we noticed that the Indians were massing their ponies close to the village. We also noticed that the teepees were being rapidly torn down and the women were packing their effects and strapping them on their pack animals. As the evening grew dark, they began to move slowly away from the river in the direction of the Bighorn Mountains. We tried to estimate the numbers of their fighting men, but it was difficult to do owing to the fact that they had their families with them and a large number of ponies. But a conservative estimate of the number of warriors would be at about 2,800. A few of the Indians remained and kept up a scattering fire as if loath to give us up. As darkness closed in around us on the 26th, the last shots came whistling over our heads. Thus closed one of the bloodiest engagements between the government and Indians which had taken place in recent years, with the exception of the sentries and the wounded, whose moaning could be heard at any hour of the night. Our camp was wrapped in slumber. As for myself, I could have slept under almost any circumstances. It was about seven o'clock in the morning that a crow scout came dashing into our midst with the news that a body of men were coming up the left bank of the river, but whether they were Indians or soldiers he couldn't tell. Major Reno then called for volunteers to go and ascertain whether they were friends or foes. The scout who had brought the report, half Yellowface, or two bloody hands by name, and one of the soldiers volunteered, and away they went, full speed. We were all in a great state of excitement at this time, wondering what the moving column could be. Were the Indians coming back to finish their deadly work? In about half an hour, the soldier returned, his horse covered with foam, with glad news that General Terry, with some of the 2nd Cavalry, and Gibbons with his infantry, were coming. We all gave a loud shout of joy, waving our hats in the air. Terry soon made his appearance, and when he had looked around on the scene of desolation, he wept. He soon recovered himself, and ordered the 7th Cavalry to move across the Little Horn River, 
and camped with the troops which had just arrived and gone into camp on the site of the Indian village. It was about one mile from our camp to the new one, and it took us a long while to remove the wounded soldiers, as all had to be carried on rudely constructed stretchers. When we came to our new camping place, we saw the position Custer was in when he made his last fight. Dead men and horses were scattered all over the ground. It was an awful sight, not on account of the dead only, but because of the mutilated condition of their bodies. The only one which was not stripped of his clothing and mutilated was General Custer. He still had on his blue shirt, buckskin pants, with the legs pushed in the tops of his long-legged boots. The rest of the officers and men were gashed with knives all over their bodies and their heads crushed in with stone mallets. The bodies were turning brown from the heat of the sun and were swollen to a great size. As they were not to be buried till the next morning, we turned our attention to the wounded. The tents which the infantry had brought with them were put up for the use of these suffering men, and everything was done which could possibly be done for their comfort. General Terry had brought with him some artillery, and our strength made it impossible for any body of Indians to cope with us. The Indians no doubt had received information of Terry's coming, which was the cause of their rapid retreat. One company of soldiers was sent out to ascertain in what direction the Indians had gone. It was one of the companies of the 7th Cavalry. There was vengeance in every man's heart on account of the horrible way in which the Indians had treated our dead. Having a desire to get some trophy, as a memento of this affair, I commenced to search the site of the Indian village. But all I could find that was easy to carry was one of our cavalry snaps, belonging to a canteen. I saw quite a number of saddles, but all the leather had been cut away. I also saw a few muzzle-loading Spencer carbines and gun shells of every kind. The Indians had left two teepees standing with dead Indians inside. There were thousands of buffalo robes scattered around, a number of which were kept for the use of the wounded. The rest went up in flame and smoke, together with the teepees. Quite a number of stone mallets covered with hair and blood, which had undoubtedly been used by the squaws on the heads of the dead and wounded soldiers, were scattered around. While I was making my way to the river, I came across the body of one of the greatest scouts on the western plains, Mitch Boyer. He had become separated from Reno's command, and while looking at the body, I heard a grunt behind me. Turning, I saw a half-yellow face watching me. I was glad to see him as I was deeply interested in him. I asked him where he was when the fight took place. He pointed to a spot on the opposite side of the river. It was a small flat bordered by some underbrush. He told me that when the cowardly re-scout started for Tongue River, the crows came to the determination to return and fight against their bitterest foes. Secreting themselves and their ponies on the right bank of the river, they kept up a continuous fire into the village until they were discovered. Then they had to retreat. An officer and a detachment of men had been left at our late place of defense with orders to destroy all food and government property that could not be removed and to bury all the dead. The rifle pits came into use as graves. Early on the morning of the 28th, what remained of the 7th Cavalry crossed the river to bury their dead. Some of the bodies of the officers were missing. Lieutenant Harrington's body could not be found. What had become of it? It is difficult to tell. It is supposed that the bodies of Lieutenants Porter, Sturgis, and Assistant Surgeon Lord were also missing. If found, 
they could not be recognized owing to the horrible manner in which they were mutilated. Major Reno says, concerning Harrington, I am strongly of the opinion that he is not only dead, but that he was burned at the stake. For while the great battle was going on, I and some of the other officers, looking through field glasses, saw the Indians, miles away, engaged in a war dance about three captives. They were tied to the stake, and my impression was that Harrington was one of them. But I think Major Reno was mistaken. We never found any evidence that Harrington suffered such a death, but we all know that the Indians are capable of just such cruelties. Major Reno makes another mistake. He says that Custer bore down on the Indians with his handful of men for the purpose of gaining all the credit for himself. The attack which occasioned the massacre was unwarranted because the Indians were the rightful possessors of the land and were entirely peaceable, and many a brave man fell in that fight simply to gratify Custer's ambition. Major Reno forgets that General Custer was acting under orders. This expedition was undertaken for the express purpose of driving the Indians back to their respective reservations, which they had no business to leave for the purpose of committing lawless acts against settlers. Major Reno had ample opportunity to get some credit for himself on two occasions. First, when sent to attack the Indians on the right, giving Custer time to collect his forces and attack the enemy's flank. But he retreated and remained inactive for nearly three hours, even when urged to go to Custer's relief by two messengers sent by Custer's command. One of the messengers was Sergeant Knipe of Company C. The command was to hurry up the ammunition and reinforcements, but the only effort made as far as the ammunition was concerned was by Sergeant Hanley of Company C taking the pack mule Barnum and alone trying to comply with Custer's request. The next one to come, and the last, was Trumpeter Martin, with orders to bring on reinforcements and the pack train, undoubtedly meaning the ammunition mules, of which we had twelve, carrying twenty-four boxes of cartridges. It is useless for the military men to say that it was impossible for Reno to do otherwise than he did. He had seven companies under his command, for Captain Bentina joined Reno shortly after his retreat from the village, and so had Captain McDougall with pack train, making their united strength about four hundred men. I am aware of all the movements of Reno's command from the time he retreated from the village till we joined his command on the bluff, his conduct, to me, seems cowardly in the extreme. His refusal to allow Captain Weir of Company D to go to Custer's relief when he begged permission, and his own inaction, goes to show his incapability. Major Reno says, When we found the men dead on the battlefield, they laid in such a position as to show they'd fled after the first fire, and the Indians pursued and shot them down, for in almost every instance, they were shot in the back. What a slander! Does he think that anyone will believe that the cavalry dismounted for the purpose of running away from the mounted savages? No one will believe it. They faced their foes like men and died like heroes. Unlike their traducer, who fled like a coward. Again, Reno says, When I came to the body of Captain Tom Custer and saw his heart was cut out, I knew that rain in the face had done it, for Tom had him arrested for the larceny of some cloth but it was for murder that Custer had reigned in the face arrested, not for stealing cloth, and he should have been hung for it, but he had escaped from the guardhouse at Fort Lincoln. Tom Custer's body was mutilated, and so were all the others with the exception of General Custer's. He remained just as he had been shot, 
with two balls in his body. This was the kind of talk Major Reno indulged in after the fight took place, a very unmanly act on his part. Early in the afternoon, when the bodies of officers and men had been covered by earth, orders were given to move camp five miles down the river slowly, for we had nearly fifty wounded men. The method of transporting the wounded was very simple. Those who had been severely wounded were placed on traveling travoys. A travoy is simply two long poles fastened to a horse, the same as the shafts of a cart, and two ends trailing on the ground, and cross pieces fastened at suitable distances behind the horse to keep the poles from spreading. Rawhide is then stretched from pole to pole and fastened by rawhide thongs. Plenty of buffalo robes were placed on top of this. It made a fine bed, and if the poles were long enough, so as to have plenty of spring, it was far superior to a wheeled vehicle. Here I would state that the only surviving thing that came from the Custer battlefield was a large buckskin-colored horse belonging to Captain Keoff. The horse was wounded in five different places, and great doubts were expressed whether he would live or not. And he did live for a great number of years afterward. His name was Comanche. On the 29th, we moved down the Little Horn five miles more. Such easy stages were very favorable to the wounded and showed great consideration on the part of General Terry. Two messengers had been sent with dispatches to General Crook's headquarters, commanding him to join forces with Terry's command at what was called the Supply Camp, on the east side of the Yellowstone River, for the purpose of conducting a most vigorous campaign against the Indians. At this time, there were no railroads or telegraph lines in the country. All dispatches and news of importance had to be carried by couriers, and a risky business it was, for the messenger generally had to travel by night with the stars for his guide. All the men who volunteered to do this work, as far as I have learned, succeeded in opening communication with the various troops in the field. What was most needed in a courier was a cool head, plenty of courage, and the best horse that could be found. They would sometimes make 80 miles or more in 12 hours. On the 30th, we again moved slowly down the riverbank and were told that the steamer Far West had succeeded in coming up the Bighorn River to within a short distance of the north of the Little Horn. As darkness came on, bonfires were lighted to guide us to where the boat lay. It was nearly 10 o'clock when we reached it. The wounded were carried on board while the cavalry and infantry camped a short distance away. The reason that Terry's and Custer's forces did not unite at the point agreed upon was that Custer gained a day by long forced marches from the time he left the Yellowstone on the 21st until he struck the Indians on the Little Horn on the 25th. Had the two forces united and then brought on an engagement with the Indians, the object of the expedition would have been accomplished. With the number of men and heavy guns Terry had with him, united with the 7th Cavalry, they would have been able to subdue the Indians and make them return to their reservations. But on account of a blunder, 267 officers and men lost their lives. And the Indians were allowed to escape. It took years to remedy the situation. The campaign of 76 cost over a million dollars and was an utter failure. Had the spirit of unity instead of rivalry prevailed, which was so manifest in one of the officers in the field, the outcome would have been very different. Where was General Crook all this time? Could he be unaware of the existence of the Indians who had attacked him on the Rosebud on the 17th of June, only eight days before Custer had the fight with them? It would take a good deal of persuasion to convince the men 
that he was hunting the enemy. We laid over all day the 30th of June and placed on board the steamer all supplies not needed by the troops. On July 2nd, the remainder of the command arrived on the west bank of the river. These were also transferred across the river in the steamer, first the horses, mules, guns, and supplies arriving, and lastly the men. We laid in camp all the next day, but on July 4th we commenced to steam down the Yellowstone River. Captain Marsh of the steamer endeared himself to all on board by his fund of humor and his kind attentions to the wounded. We soon arrived at Bismarck, where we laid over till next morning, when we continued our journey to the landing at Fort Lincoln, from where we had started. We found that we were the first to bring the news of the disaster. When the news was broken to the widows of the dead officers and soldiers, it was a sight which brought tears to all eyes. The wounded were removed to the hospital, and the dead were buried in the graveyard on the hill. Poor Bennett died on the afternoon of the 5th of July with my hand clasping his. So died a man who always gave me good advice and always tried to follow the advice he gave. Peter Thompson The story of the Battle of Little Bighorn was the new story of the century, with the editor of the Bismarck paper keeping the telegraph operator busy for hours transmitting information to the New York Herald, for which he corresponded. News of the defeat arrived in the east as the U.S. was observing its centennial. The army began to investigate, although its effectiveness was hampered by a concern for survivors and the reputation of the officers. Custer's wife, Elizabeth Bacon Custer, known as Libby, guarded and promoted the ideal of him as the gallant hero, attacking any who cast any ill light on his reputation. The Battle of the Little Bighorn had far-reaching consequences for the natives. It was the beginning of the end of the Indian Wars and has even been referred to as the Indians' last stand in the area. Within 48 hours of the battle, the large encampment of the Little Bighorn broke up into smaller groups because there was not enough game and grass to sustain a large congregation of people and horses. Oglala Sioux Black Elk recounted the exodus this way. We fled all night, following the greasy grass. My two younger brothers and I rode in a pony drag, and my mother put some young pups in with us. They were always trying to crawl out, and I was always putting them back in, so I didn't sleep much. The scattered Sioux and Cheyenne beasted and celebrated during July with no threat from soldiers. After their celebrations, many of the natives returned to the reservation. Soon the number of warriors amounted to only about 600. Both Crook and Terry remained immobile for seven weeks after the battle, awaiting reinforcements and unwilling to venture out against the Sioux and Cheyenne until they had at least 2,000 men. Crook and Terry finally took the field against the native forces in August. General Nelson A. Miles took command of the effort October 1876. In May of 1877, Sidney Bull escaped to Canada. Within days, Crazy Horse surrendered at Fort Robinson, Nebraska. The Great Sioux War ended on May 7th with Miles' defeat of the remaining band of Minikanju Sioux. Thus ends our story of the Little Bighorn. We hope you enjoyed it. We always appreciate your sharing our show with others, and we appreciate reviews, and we have a few for you. The first one, this podcast is wonderful. I listen to it when I run in the mornings. 
I'm a homeschool teacher with four kids and was so excited to see an episode about the Katyn Massacre. We actually have a timeline that we study every year, and that is part of it, right after Stalin of the USSR. My kids are getting older, so I'm making history more of a priority. We've memorized the names of events, but now I want to do a bit more study. After I listened to the Katyn Massacre, I told my 11-year-old daughter what I'd learned. By the way, are you planning on doing an episode about the wasps of World War II? I only ask because my grandma was one. I thank you for all that you're doing. Signed, Ashley. This message was actually delivered as a direct message on our Facebook page at 1001 Heroes, and I answered Ashley. Thank you for your kind words. There are two Katyn Massacre episodes, so make sure you catch them both. That was an eye-opening story for me. We homeschooled our kids as well, and you are definitely on the right path. You might consider adding 1001 classic short stories and 1001 greatest love stories to your homeschool lineup, with a Q&A after each story. The 1001 Classic Love Stories podcast highlights a lot of female authors, and it's a real discovery. There are so many great female writers from the classic literature period, which spanned roughly 1875 through 1930. You should check out both. If you're Apple, drop us a few reviews when you can. Thanks. We've, and we've gotten a lot of reviews lately. And, and some heated ones, as I expected, because we're doing the story on the Indians. The first one reads, No comprehension of the truth about Indians. Very informative, but no clue how Indians lived and blamed scalping on them when it was a white man's invention. I've heard this from a number of people, and you really need to go back and do your studies. Let's look at the first white men to reach the shores of America, okay? Which would be Captain Smith and his crew in 1607. If you read Captain Smith's journals, and he left a lot of them, on his first contact with Chief Powhatan, he noticed a number of scalps hanging inside Powhatan's lodge. These were scalps from rival tribes. There were, no, there were no white men on the east coast of North America in 1607. Smith really was the first. So you need to go back and look at your history before you give me a lousy review and you're not being factual in the information that you're giving me. So for you and other reviewers who want to constantly tell me that scalping was the white man's invention, please go back, do your homework. Next review, The Truth. Thank you for having the courage to tell the truth about the notable Indian culture, also not hiding the white man's sins either. Most people have forgotten the facts about the Indian ways. There's no defense of some of the horrible events of our history, but thank you for telling both sides of it. That one from Wolfie Wolf, Apple Podcast. U.S. And this one, content is great. Progressive ad is driving me away. This podcast is very informative and entertaining. One of my favorites. That being said, if I have to listen to another motorcycle insurance advertisement from Progressive Insurance, I am unsubscribing. The blare of the motorcycle ears and I'm scrambling to find my phone volume switch. Not my idea of a relaxing evening, Listening to a podcast. That one from Cairo Carl, Apple Podcast US. And Cairo Carl, I got to tell you this. Progressive is the best sponsor I've ever had. They sponsor the entire year of 2019, and they're sponsoring the entire year of 2020. And their ads only come on before and after our episodes. So the progressive ads do not appear inside of our episodes. I am very indebted to Progressive Insurance, and I hope a lot of our fans are using Progressive Insurance. 
And also keep in mind that Progressive is paying these shows, not you. They're free. I'm sure you watch TV at home and listen to radio at home and in the car. They're all advertiser-supported. And so is the show. We appreciate our sponsors. And we hope all of our fans go out of their way to do business with them. Just to help keep our show going. And those who want to hear our episodes ad-free can join patreon.com forward slash 1001 stories podcast. You can email me any shows you want to hear ad-free and I'll send them to you. And I'll send a link to you if you're a Patreon supporter. Thank you for listening. And here's another fresh review. Wish you would have been my high school history teacher. John, I so much enjoy listening to your well-crafted podcast. I appreciate the thorough research you've conducted for each episode. You have such a gift of telling stories and bringing characters to life. I wish you would have been my high school history teacher. I might have scored higher than a D in history. Keep up your excellent work as I enjoy listening to your podcast on a daily basis. That one from Tall Karen. And this one, awesome podcast on essential history. Thanks for great stories, fine research, and tactfully delivered without biased views. That one from Boy One Boo, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. And this one, awesome, five stars, like sitting down with an old friend. I look forward to listening to each new podcast. John's unique delivery and choice of subjects is what really makes this podcast stand out and special. His passion for providing a well-thought-out podcast is obvious in every show. Much thanks to all the effort and determination in delivering so many wonderful shows. I'm looking forward to listening to many more in the future. That one from Rock R2, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one. Just a lot of profanities. I kept skipping in to get the point of this podcast, but there's just a lot of profanities, arguments, and nonsense jokes. The other host, the other host, should just keep quiet and listen. So annoying. Or just get out of this podcast. Down from Meshack Apple Podcast, who was probably listening to somebody else's podcast, but decided to send mine to bad review. Thank you, Meshack. And this one, magnificent for lack of a better word. This is the best podcast. The stories are simply fantastic. The heroes are amazing. The legends are timeless. The history is enthralling. And the mysteries are captivating. John is a wonderful choice for a friendly voice to guide us through each adventure. I started listening when I was curious about the story of Bonnie and Clyde and became addicted. Now I wait each Sunday for a new episode. The theme music starts and I'm ready to be taken on another epic adventure smothered with insight, facts, opinions, and gems. It's also nice in this polarized time of our country that this remains neutral on current politics. Thank you for that. Highly recommend listening. If you have already heard, read, whichever story is covered by this show, have a listen. You're likely to hear something about it that you never knew. Keep up the awesome work. That one from that one from Oxydrum, Apple Podcast, U.S. I'd like to thank each and every one of you, well, with the exception of a couple, for taking the time to write these reviews. They're, they're very, very much appreciated. And I thank you for being such wonderful fans. Please do share our show with others. Help them subscribe if you can. And don't forget we have other podcasts out there too. 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. 1001 Greatest Love Stories. 1001 Stories for the Road. And 1001 Radio Days, just to name a few. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back next Sunday night with a brand new story. See you then.